So yesterday I was uh, driving home from the Philadelphia area. I spoke at a conference yesterday at the University of Valley Forge, which is actually in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, but uh, people are more familiar with Philadelphia than Phoenixville. And uh, I was driving home, and a, a thought hit me. As I was driving, I thought, how much has the traveling experience changed? The road trip experience, how much has it, has it changed since I was a kid till today? What made me think that is, as I was traveling north on 476, I looked down and realized I didn't have enough gas to make it home, and I, I didn't know when the next gas station was going to be. Now, 25, 30 years ago, you would just cross your fingers. I hope there's a gas station coming. But I was simply able to hit one button on my GPS, and it immediately told me every gas station that was coming up on my trip, and exactly how long it would take me if I got off the exit to get back onto the highway. Isn't that convenient? You ever get off thinking there's a gas station here and then 20 minutes later you're still looking for the gas station on back roads? You know, years ago that wasn't an option. Uh, I actually, you all remember this, well, those of you that are my age or, or older, you remember going to the AAA and saying, I need a triptych, right? Going, driving down to Baltimore, Maryland, I need a triptych. And what would they do? They'd print it out for you. And it was one of these, uh, it had a spiral bound thing at the top and you would open it and they would, uh, the, they would take a magic marker, like a pink magic marker, and they would chart out your course for you. And, and often you would get those months in advance, not, not, not up to date for sure. And they would do their best to try and point out where there might be construction or where there might be issues. But Nowadays, my GPS can literally identify a car accident three miles down the road and tell me, get off this exit. There was an accident uh, just now. I mean, incredible, right? The way we travel has changed. Another way that uh, it's changed is the seating arrangements for children. I mean... When I was a kid, you just, we all just got thrown into the back of the vehicle. And, uh, I mean, there weren't even seatbelt laws until 1982, 83. And so if you ever watch shows or movies that were set like in the 50s or 60s, it's very disorienting to see the kids in the back seats running around and like jumping all over the place. Because now, think how much, money, how much money is spent every year just on selling car seats, buying car seats, even just the research millions or billions of dollars that uh, is spent every year just to research how to keep kids safe. It's a miracle anyone my age is alive. I mean, we somehow survived when nobody was really looking out for us. Uh, But now, uh, you know, the kids are strapped in until they're like eight or 10 years old. Another thing that's really changed with the road trip experience is your entertainment options. So when my family and I would drive when I was a kid, we, we had to come up with, we had to be creative. Like we had to come up with games. We used to play, I remember Lisa and I used to play the alphabet game, where it was just you had to go through the alphabet in order by finding those letters on signs or license plates, right? You always were hoping that a license plate would go by with a Q on it because you could never find the Q. And we didn't have a lot, a lot of options. Of course, we had books, but I've always gotten car sick when I try to read, so we never really would do that. But nowadays, you know, a lot of minivans come with entertainment systems right in them. And my girls have their iPads back there uh, with them. It's changed so much. But one of the games that my girls love to play when we travel is simply called Would You Rather? Would You Rather is actually not a iPad game. It's a game where we have conversations as a family. 
and we pose questions to each other. And so I'll go first, and I'll say, all right, Lilia, would you rather, now Lilia's favorite food is chicken wings, would you rather have never be able to eat chicken wings again or have a puppy? And she'll be like, oh, that's so tired. That's so, you know, she's, you know, she's just so, she's so torn. Caroline sometimes is so internally torn, she refuses to choose. I'm like, Caroline, you know this is hypothetical. Like, this is not real life. She's like, I can't, I won't choose. I won't make a choice. <laughs> a lot of the would you rather questions that you'll find in books or online have to do actually with, t- with time travel. So let me just give you an example. If you had a time travel machine for one day, would you rather travel 500 years in the past or 50 years in the future? So there's questions like that. Would you rather go back, start all over in kindergarten, knowing what you know now, or jump forward till the end? You know, I mean, there's all these different sort of time travel related would you rather questions. And I, there's lots of movies about time travel too, right? I mean, obviously, the, probably the most famous one is Back to the Future. But there's lots of movies where people can jump through time for different reasons. And I think we're kind of fascinated about time travel because, A, we currently can't do it, and B, there's things in our past we would change if we could, right? How many, if you had a time travel machine, some of you know things you would go back and decisions you would make different, things that you wish you could change about your past, but we also, there's also things that we wish we could know about our future. And so time travel is so sort of, uh, enticing to us because we'd like to go back and change things. We'd like to go forward and know things. And quite honestly, sometimes the present is boring and we're more interested in the past and the future. And the tension that I think a lot of us live in is how do we live our lives in such a way that we live aware of our past, looking to our future, but fully present? And some people live most of their lives in their past. But the problem with only living in your past is that you you can't move forward. You can't break free. You don't let go of things. You and actually it's living in the past prevents you from being fully present here and now. But for some people that's a real struggle because there's things in their past that they, they just they live there. And then other people live in the future only. They just keep looking forward. But sometimes it's because they're looking forward to something good. And so it's the thing that they daydream about all day long. And while they're daydreaming about the future, the present is passing them by. But for other people, they live in the future because it's their fears that cause them to live in the future. And they're paralyzed by the possibilities. And so their life is full of anxiety. There are some people who maybe live in the present only. But the danger of living in the present only is this. We don't learn from the mistakes of the past, and we don't think through the consequences of what we're doing, right? So isn't it true that if we're going to live life in a healthy way, we need to be aware of our past, we need to be uh, thinking about our future, but we have to be in the present, all three of those together. And this morning, in our last message in the series, What is the Gospel?, I want to share with you this simple thought, that the gospel changes your past, your present, and your future. The gospel has something to say about your past, it has something to say about your present, and it has something to say about your future. So let's look at this text. Paul is in jail, and and he's writing a letter to the church at Philippi. This is a church that he loves dearly, and he he helped to start. And beginning in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 1, I'm reading to you verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says this, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. 
And whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ, which is the gospel. Remember, one of our weeks was the gospel is good news, not good advice. Spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. Verse 6. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Does that encourage anyone else's heart this morning? In these few verses, we actually see the gospel changing our past, our present, and our future. I've had the opportunity to go on a bunch of mission trips, overseas mission trips, and many of them have been to Spanish-speaking countries. And I actually took three years of Spanish in high school. Now, I know a lot of people took Spanish in high school and they don't remember anything. For whatever reason, I have a mind for it. So I retained a lot of it. I didn't think I was retaining it while I was studying it, but it turns out I did. So I, I, re, I remembered a lot of vocabulary. I remember a lot of sentence structure stuff. And so when I would go to Dominican Republic or Ecuador or, 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 or Cuba or Mexico, I could, always, I could always say what I wanted to say. It was very hard for me to understand what they were saying back to me because very often we were working with kids and they would just speak so fast I had no clue what they said, and then they have slang, and they just say things differently. But I could always say what I needed to say, important things like where's the bathroom and when's dinner, like things like that. (laughs) But I figured out, and the longer I would spend there, by the end of my time there, whether it was 10 days, it started to come back even more, right? That's what happens as you immerse yourself. I remember in 2003 when I was in Cuba, the Cubans said, if you stayed here for six months, you would be fluent in Spanish by the time... Uh, you went back. And I said, yeah, if I stayed here for six months, I'd also lose about 50 pounds because there's no food down there. Uh, um, but I, 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 I did well with speaking Spanish in those settings with one major exception. I really struggled with verb tenses. So, you know, from English class, there's three main verb tenses. There's the past tense, there's the present or present progressive, and there's the future tense. And all of my Spanish ability was present tense. I could only say verbs in the present tense. So I couldn't say anything that I did yesterday. I could never talk about the past. I didn't know how to. And I, could, I kind of figured out a shortcut to talk about the future, but I wasn't very good with the future tense either. And this, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about salvation, there really are three tenses. I think I've mentioned this before, but there really are three tenses to salvation. There's the past there is the present, or present progressive, which means it's ongoing, and there's the future. So what I want to do is talk to you about those tenses, the past, the present, and the future. And they're all in the verse we just read. So first, the past tense of salvation is simply this. Uh, you have been saved, past tense, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You have been saved from the penalty. Write down the word if you're taking notes. Write down that word, penalty. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. Now, this first tense of salvation, the past tense of salvation, something that has happened if you believe in Jesus, biblical scholars are, call this justification. This is justification. Now, let me talk a little bit about the first tense of salvation. The first tense of salvation, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. When does this happen? It happens at the moment of conversion. 
Okay? It happens at the moment of conversion. This is when you repent of your sin and you place your trust fully and solely in Jesus Christ. Many of you have, have done this. And if you haven't done this, you certainly can. When you respond to God's grace, God's grace wakes your heart up to realize you're a sinner and you need a Savior. You don't figure that out on your own, by the way. That's called prevenient grace. That's God's grace coming to your heart to say, hey, you're lost. You can't save yourself. So when God's grace convinces you of that truth and then directs your heart to see Jesus as your only hope and you, you put saving faith in Jesus Christ, that's the moment of conversion. And the other thing that happens at the moment of conversion, well, there's many things, but one of the other things that happens at the moment of conversion is that the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. This is called regeneration. Really, one way to understand this is the Holy Spirit breathes life into your dead hearts. The Bible doesn't say you were bad in your sins, you were naughty in your sins, you were wrong in your sins, you weren't good enough in your sins. The Bible says you were dead, dead in your sins. So the Holy Spirit comes in with this breath of life, and at that exact moment, at that exact moment, you are 100% saved from the penalty of sin. If you were to die that moment, you're freed from the penalty of sin. And what is the penalty of sin? Well, according to Romans 6.23, it's death, right? The wages of sin is death. And not just physical death, of course, because we all experience physical death, but spiritual death, separation. Sin always produces two things in our lives. It always produces shame, and it always produces separation, And so the penalty of sin, which is separation from God or eternal separation from God, is lifted from us, taken from our account at the moment of salvation or conversion. This is called, like I said, justification. So so let me give you kind of a a wordy definition for justification. I'll say it two times, but this this is as succinct as I can make it. Justification is the act. It's an act. It's not a process. That's very important. We're going to talk about sanctification in a minute, which is a process. Justification is not a process. It is an act. It happens. Justification is the act by which repentant sinners are declared and treated righteous, meaning approved and accepted, righteous by and before a holy God because of their faith alone in the person and work of Jesus on their behalf. Probably a run-on sentence, right? Probably a run-on sentence, but it's, it, you got to say it all, otherwise you're missing something. Let me just say it to you one more time. Justification, we're talking about the past tense of salvation. Justification is the act by which repentant sinners are declared and treated righteous. Isn't that wonderful that God not just says you're righteous, but he treats you as if you are righteous. Declared and treated righteous by and before a holy God because of your faith alone in the person and work of Jesus on your behalf. In other words, you're trusting in Jesus' work that it is sufficient for you to make you righteous in the eyes of the Father. Completely righteous in God's eyes. Because why? Because you're now in Christ. You're in Christ. You're covered by Christ. His righteousness has been given to you. And you wear like, uh, it's almost like, I don't know if you've seen the movies, the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, but they have that, the one guy has the invisibility cloak. And when he puts it over him, They can't see him anymore. It's sort of like that, that we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, that his cloak of his righteousness now covers us so that when the Father looks at you, he sees you as if you live the life that Jesus lived. I mean, how 
How amazing is that? How much does that stir your heart to gratitude? Because you and I know the lives we've lived, and they're not the life that Jesus lived. But because of justification, because he has chosen to save us from the penalty of our sins, he can look at us and say, righteous, holy, accepted, son, daughter. At the moment of conversion, you are as righteous in God's eyes as somebody who's been in church their whole life. It's like when someone gets their driver's license for the first time. They technically have, I know that when they're young, they can't drive after nine or something, but let's forget that for a second. They technically have all the rights that somebody has who's driven with a perfect driving record for 50 years. There's not a separate lane on the highway for people who have perfect driving records. I wish there was. I wouldn't be in it, but I wish there, I w- I wish there was. They don't get to park in specific places or they don't have access to certain roads because they've had their driver's license longer than someone who literally just got it. When you just get it, your status changes and you went from being unlicensed to licensed and now your status changes. And this is what it means to be saved from the penalty of sin. You've had a status change. You've had a status changed. You are in the kingdom of darkness and now you are in the kingdom of light. It's not just sort of like transition thing. Sometimes you ask people, am I a Christian? You say, well, I'm trying to be a Christian. Well, someone says they're trying to be a Christian, they don't understand the first thing about what it means to be a Christian. It's not trying to be a Christian. You're either in the kingdom or you're out of the kingdom based on your faith. Now, you might be trying to grow to be more like Christ. That's different. But not trying to become a Christian. 2 Corinthians 5.17 gives us this hope that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone and the new has begun. Now, it may not always feel that way. Sometimes that oldness still feels like it's lingering, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But as far as your status, listen, if you have placed your faith fully and solely in Jesus Christ, you are accepted by the Father. You are approved by the Father, and you have been saved from the penalty of sin. There will not be a separation from the Father for you. You know, it said in the text that we read, it's the good news about Christ. It's the gospel from the time you, what, first heard it. So that, Paul is saying the very first time you heard it, something very significant. And it's not just the hearing, but hearing and responding. That's what Paul's saying. But that, that phrase, first heard, if you study that in the Greek, that word first means it proceeds over all others in time, but also in degree. So Paul's not just saying from the first time you heard it chronologically, but he's also saying this is the first time you heard it, but he's also saying it's first in importance. In other words, You'll never get to the other two tenses of salvation if, you don't, if this isn't in your life. If you don't know, and if you haven't experienced being saved from the penalty of sin, well, then forget the next two because you're not going to get there. You're not going to experience it. So first heard. Okay, so that's the past tense of salvation. Let's talk about the present tense of salvation. The present tense of salvation says this. You are being saved. That's present progressive. You are being saved from what? The power of sin. There's your second word. So the first word was you've been saved from the penalty of sin. Penalty is not over your head anymore. But you're being saved from the power of sin. And this is what we call sanctification. Okay? It says in the verse that we read that God who began the good work within you will continue his work. Now, some people teach what's not true, which is instantaneous sanctification. Now, in a sense, you are sanctified at the moment of salvation. But some people teach, once you become a Christian, you never sin again. And I just don't know how, 
I'm not sure how unself-aware you have to be to think that, but not only is it not work in real life, it's not taught in the scriptures. It says here that he who began the good work within you will continue his work. God has to continue the work in you. How many of you are thankful that God is continuing his work? Remember the old children's song, God's still working on me to make me who I ought to be? I forget the rest, but it's that idea that God is still at work in us and on us and through us. So yes, we've been saved from the penalty of sin, but there's more. You are being saved from the power of sin. God wants us to be saved, but he also has a plan to keep saving us. Uh, God wants our lives ultimately to reflect the life of Jesus. We've been saved for a purpose, to glorify God and to point to Jesus. And the best way for us to do that is to actually be like Jesus, to be conformed into his very image. But here's the problem, and God knows this, of course, because he knows everything. You and I don't have the ability on our own to make ourselves like Jesus. Therefore, when God justifies you, when he saves you from the penalty of sin, he also simultaneously begins in you a lifelong process of sanctification. And sanctification is the present tense work of the gospel. And like justification was an act, remember? Sanctification is a process. It's a process. We are in process. It is, sanctification is being set apart for God's purposes and plans and to be like the person of his son. That's really one way to understand it. That as we're being sanctified, we're being set apart, which is what the word actually means, to be set apart. So not just set apart so that we're more holy than other people, but set apart for God's purposes and plans. He's sanctifying you not just to clean you up, but to send you out and to make you useful to the kingdom. Sanctification is developing, sharpening, equipping, and refining who you are. Uh, Philippians 2.13, in the next chapter, Paul describes sanctification this way. He says, for God is working in you and he's giving you, listen to this, he's giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. What a great thing to pray for each other and to pray for ourselves. God, today, would you give me both the desire and the power to do things that please you? Let's, let's just be honest. In some moments, we don't have either. We don't have the desire. We just don't. Anyone just weary of trying to, you, you just don't always have the desire. You don't. And you don't always have the power. That's why God, who began the work in you, is faithful to continue working in you. Sanctification is the continuing, sustaining work of the Holy Spirit in your life to make you more and more like Jesus. God has given us some tools of sanctification. You know, if I give you a, if, if, if you're a construction guy, Gary is a master carpenter. And uh, if, if I were to say, Gary, I, I need something made, like he needs tools, right? I mean, as good as he is, he's got to have tools. He can't just do it with his bare hands. Maybe he could, but he, tools would be better. And so we need tools and we need tools for sanctification. And let me just share with you a few tools that God has given us for sanctification. The first tool that God has given us to sanctify us and grow us is his grace, his grace. Sometimes we think his grace just saves us. No, his grace is growing you too. Remember earlier in the series, we, I did a whole message called the gospel doesn't just get you in, it grows you up. So it's his grace that, gets, that helps us to continue to grow. And in this passage, he says, he who began the good work in you. Now the Greek word began means this, to take the first step or steps in carrying out an action. So it implies there are more steps to take. 
God took the first step, but he's with you every step of the way. It's not like God saves us by his grace, and now we sanctify ourselves by our self-determination and effort and will. Now, self-determination, effort, and will are part of growing in Christ, but not ever apart from Christ, and certainly never apart from his grace. What this means is we have to keep the past tense and the present tense always connected. What's happening now always flows out of a deepening appreciation for what happened then. Here's what I'm trying to say. You're never going to experience ongoing salvation from the power of sin without daily remembering and rehearsing that you've been saved from the penalty of sin. It's the truth that we've been saved from the penalty of sin that reshapes our heart in such a way that we can respond to God's work in our lives so that we can also be saved from the power of sin. A lot of Christians make this mistake where they try to grow in their own power. They try to save themselves, and they disconnect the work of justification from sanctification. But if you're not looking back, and that's why at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God, before he gave Israel the Ten Commandments, the thing that he prefaced it with was, I am the Lord your God who what? Delivered you out of Egypt. And Old Testament scholars say, and I remember my dad has taught us this, when you read the Ten Commandments, you should reread that phrase before every single one. So before you read, thou shalt not kill, they would have said back then, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of it. What's happening there? Well, it's a gospel pattern. It's God saying, remember what I've done for you. I saved you out of Egypt. Not because you were good. Not because you kept the commandments. You didn't even have them yet. Not because you were better than anyone else. I saved you because I'm God and I chose to save you. And I've loved you and I've given you this salvation. Now, keep preaching that to your heart. And as your heart begins to believe that and receive that more, then, it's, then you can begin to receive his commandments joyfully and not as a burden. Wow, if you did that for me, then I can joyfully partner in the work of growth in my own life, not as an act of work, but as an act of worship. You, some of you know the story in Luke 15. Jesus tells a parable about two sons. One son is, uh, runs off and squanders all his father's wealth, and the other son stays and works with the father and the younger son comes back home and, and there's a moment of repentance where the father runs to him and restores him and throws a party for him. And then the older brother hears about it and he's ticked off and he's standing out in the field and he complains to his father and he says, Father, all these years I've worked so hard for you. I've slaved for you. I've never broken a single rule. I mean, this son of yours, he broke every single rule you have. I never broke a rule. But you killed the fatted calf for him. He got ribeye and I've never even had a goat. And the father looks at the son, I picture this, with all the love in his heart, and says, son, everything I have is yours. Everything, you want a goat? Grab a goat. It's yours. Like, literally, everything I have is yours. And what he's saying is, you've been slavishly working for what's already yours. And whenever we disconnect the past tense of salvation from the present tense of salvation, we are at risk of slavishly working for what's already ours. We don't work for righteousness. We work because we've been declared righteous and our hearts are so in awe and so taken with what it costs to make us righteous that we can't help but say, all right, I want to live righteous too. I don't want to just be declared righteous, but I want to live righteous. So it's important that we keep those connected. So the tool of sanctification is 
the grace of God. Another tool of sanctification is the daily work of the Holy Spirit. You know that the Holy Spirit, I had this conception of the Holy Spirit when I was growing up in church, that the Holy Spirit showed up at the altar time. He was hanging out in the foyer with his buddies, and then when he heard the music come at the end of the service, he's like, I better show up. Like, and the Holy Spirit would come in. I know it's ridiculous, but I kind of had that thought in my mind because that's when things happened. But you know, the Holy Spirit wants to be just, in pres- just as present with you in your workplace as he does if you're up here singing or praying. Do you know the Holy Spirit wants to fill every moment of your life, not just Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, every moment of your life. And we need to be daily dependent upon the Holy Spirit. When the text says that God began a good work, the word work means that it's, a, it's something that's produced or accomplished through the effort of someone else. It's, a, it's another person who's accomplishing this work for us. It's the Holy Spirit at work in us. And what the Holy Spirit does is, the primary thing the Holy Spirit does, by the way, is keeps reminding us, pointing us to Jesus, revealing Jesus to our hearts and who he is and what he's done, but also shaping us and forming us. Let me give you two more tools that God has given us for sanctification. The, so I've said the grace of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. What are spiritual disciplines? Time in prayer. Time in the word, silence, reflection, fasting. These are all tools of sanctification in the life of the believer. And when they're done in line with his grace and in line with his spirit's work, they're powerful. They're so powerful. Because one of the primary reasons we need to read scripture is because we, we forget so easily what's true. We forget so easily what's real. And Scripture has a way of reorienting our hearts and waking us up from our false identities to reminding us who we truly are in Christ. Scripture has a powerful way of doing that. And so all I would say to you this morning is if you're a Christian, what's your plan? What's your plan? Like, what is, what is your rhythm? You're not going to become a fully formed disciple of Jesus Christ on accident. So what is your rhythm? And it doesn't have to look like someone else's. Some of you are reading, you know, some of you spend an hour in prayer every day. Some of you, it would be a major move of God if you spent 10 minutes in prayer every day. And so I'm not trying to dictate to you what it has to look like, but I would be bold enough to say this. You need to have a plan. Like, you need to know what you're doing and why you're doing it and when you're doing it. And so if you don't have any plan right now, and, you call, and, and, and you're a follower of Jesus, I'm challenging you this morning to, this afternoon, sit down and go, what's my plan? When am I going to read? What am I going to read? When am I going to pray? How am I going to pray? And so if someone would say to you, what's your spiritual disciplines look like? You could say, well, this is what I try to do every day before I get up in the morning or on my drive to work. I make sure I don't turn the radio on. I just spend time in prayer. Or on my lunch break, I make sure I read a, a chapter from Psalms. Or Just like, have a plan. And God's going to use those disciplines to shape you and form you. And then the fourth thing that God uses as a tool of sanctification in our life is each other. Each other. It's doing life in community with each other. We need each other to get where we're going as individuals. And so let me ask you this question. Who is the person in your life that can ask you hard questions about your spiritual life? And maybe someone who's not your spouse would be, I mean, I hope your spouse does that for you also. But in addition to that, who's the person in your life who you've given permission to say, hey, you have, I want to give you permission to ask me hard questions about my life, my spiritual life. You have full permission to text me at any time and say, hey, 
what's God speaking to your heart? Did you, what, did you, what did he say to your heart from Scripture this morning? And tell that person what your plan is so that they can help you uh, be accountable. I, you know, people use accountability uh, partners in all areas of life because they know it works. The gym is a great example. Like, there are a few times in my life where I've had somebody who was meeting me there, I never missed. Like, you show up when you know someone else is going to show up. And when you're lifting weights and they're saying, come on, two more, come on, you can do it. You keep doing it because they're helping you. They're pushing you. They're helping you grow. When I'm there by myself, I like lift it once. I'll be like, oh, I'm hungry. And I'll just like <laughs> walk, out the, walk out the door. And there's like, there's nobody there who's telling me otherwise. And so we need people in our lives who can ask us those, those sort of questions. Okay, so, that, so past tense of salvation, present tense of salvation. Let's get to the end. The future tense of salvation, the way that the gospel changes our future. So you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And here's the last one. Someday you will be saved from the very presence of sin. Someday you will be saved from the very presence of sin. Paul says it this way. God will finally finish it on the day when Christ returns. Finally finished on the day when Christ returns. So the past tense, they call it justification. Present tense, they call it sanctification. The future tense, it's called glorification. Glorification. That one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. The ultimate work of the gospel is that someday sin won't have any, we won't even, it just won't be there. I mean, how... People sit around going, oh, I wonder what heaven would be like. I wonder what the streets would be like. I wonder what the trees would be like. I wonder what the... And you know what I wonder? What will I be like without sin? Like, what will the world be like without sin? I can't even begin to imagine who am I without sin, without, without frustration? Who am I without insecurity? Who am I without feelings of inadequacy? Who am I without... I, we don't even... We can't even begin to imagine who we're going to be when God saves us, future tense, from the very presence of sin. You without any pain, you without any regrets, you without any of that, just completely freed from the very presence of sin. When Paul said that it's a day, the word means that it's a day that's been assigned to a particular purpose. And here's what Paul's saying. Every single one of us has a day that's been picked out, assigned for a particular purpose. It's for the purpose of glorification that he will someday save us from the very presence of sin. And it happens for all of us, either at death or if Christ returns first. But when we meet the Savior face to face, when we see him, we, are, we will be saved from sin's presence. Here's what it means. Our broken human bodies and our broken human hearts will be redeemed and fully glorified in his presence. When Paul says it will be finally finished, you know what that means? It means this, to bring to a whole to bring to a whole with all the necessary parts or elements. Paul's basically saying this, someday the tapestry will be finished. Someday the tapestry that God is putting together of our lives, it'll be done, and the very presence of sin will be gone. The good news is described this way in Hebrews chapter 9. We don't necessarily know who wrote Hebrews, but Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 to 28, the author says this, just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes the judgment, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. And then he says this, he will come again, not to deal with our sins. Why? Because there's a past tense. 
And there's a presence tense. He's dealing with our sins. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but what? To bring salvation, future tense salvation, to all who eagerly await for him. You have been saved from the past tense, or you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And someday, you will be saved from the very presence of sin. The gospel changes our past, our present, and our future. And in closing, let me just say this. Here's how these different tenses help us, okay? So let's talk about this tense first, justification. As our hearts begin to better understand and appreciate what Christ has done to free us from the penalty of sin, it frees us from things like shame. It frees us from things like guilt. It frees us from our past. It frees us from feeling like we have to somehow now pay the penalty for our sin. A lot of Christians live that way. Like, okay, I messed up a lot. And for the rest of my life, I'm going to pay the penalty of my sin. Hear me very carefully. The Christian has nothing to atone for. Nothing. If you think that, then what you're saying essentially is what Jesus did on the cross wasn't good enough. It wasn't sufficient for me. When he said it's finished, he meant other people but he didn't mean me. The Christian has nothing to atone for, but the Christian has everything to be thankful for. Okay, that's the difference. The Christian, you don't spend your life trying to pay the price of the penalty. You don't have the right currency. You couldn't pay it. And so as we begin to thank God, God, thank you, for, thank you that you saved me, past tense. Now, some of you, it's not past tense because you've not experienced this. But saved me, past tense, from the penalty of sin, thank you for justifying me. It frees you from guilt and shame and spending your entire life trying to pay the penalty that's already been paid. What does this tense do? As we understand that God is currently saving us from the power of sin, it helps us to endure. It helps us to endure. It helps us to grow. It gives us patience. It gives us patience with ourselves, but here's what else it does. It gives us patience with each other. The person next to you that calls themselves a Christian and probably very well is a Christian is still in the process of being saved. So be patient. They're not who they're going to be, but they're not who they were, right? So it gives us that. But then what does the future tense give us? How does glorification help us? It helps us because it gives us hope. It gives us hope. It gives us strength. It gives us hope when we suffer, when we lose when, when, when we feel like the story has ended in a way that we didn't want the story to end, we realize, no, wait, that's not the end of the story. The story doesn't end here. It ends there. And you know where the story ends for Christians? Around his throne, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, crying out, holy is the Lord and worthy is the Lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth to save us from the penalty, to save us from the power of sin, and to someday save us from the very presence of sin. Let's pray together this morning.